0: Well, good evening. Merry Christmas. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, And he called his name Jesus. What comes to mind when you think about the Christmas story? When we think about the Christmas story, oftentimes we think of peaceful, kind of pastoral images. We think about Mary and Joseph and a little baby. Maybe we think about a star overhead. Maybe we think about the angels in a field nearby. We th- or the shepherds in the field nearby with the angels that cry out, Glory to God in the highest. Maybe we think about the wise men who came and brought gifts to Jesus. We think about the manger scene. We think about all the events that happened. But for one character in the Christmas story, the Christmas story was filled with betrayal. It was filled with confusion. It was filled with fear. filled with uncertainty. Today, I'd like to look at the Christmas story through the eyes of Joseph. No doubt Joseph had hoped... And dreamed of the day that he would marry his bride, Mary. It says in the text that he was betrothed to Mary. A betrothal was similar to our engagement, but it was slightly different. It was about kind of like being three quarters married. A person who was a couple who were betrothed, they weren't allowed to engage in sexual relations, but they were referred to as husband and wife. In order to break a betrothal, it required an act of divorce. It was that serious. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed, and it says in the course of time, it became clear that Mary was pregnant. They didn't have pregnancy tests back then, so she started to show. And I I imagine Joseph at first thought to himself, surely this cannot be. Surely this can't be happening. We've never had relations. This can't happen. In the course of time, it became clear she was indeed pregnant. Then the question is, what is he going to do? probably questioned he probably asked god god why would you allow this to happen to me it says in the text he was a just a righteous man he followed after the lord he probably wondered how mary could do this to him how he could be so naive and not know that this was going to happen probably questioned god probably a little bit confused then what does he do Well, in the law, it actually said that someone who committed adultery could be stoned. So he could have gone to the religious leaders and and demanded that Mary be stoned. But again, it says in the text, he was a just and righteous man, so he does the kind, compassionate things. He decides he's going to divorce her quietly. He's not going to put her to open shame. He's just going to divorce her quietly and move on with his life. But then we know an angel appears to him in in a dream, and the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now here's where things get interesting. You know, you think about it from Joseph's perspective, and probably the best option for him at this point is to kind of move on. I mean, it's clearly not his child, and you can only imagine what his family what his friends, what the religious leaders are going to think about him if he's with Mary and Mary is pregnant. You can only imagine the looks. You can only imagine the things, the nasty things people might say. This was considered a great act of immorality. And you can imagine him trying to explain it. No, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. I don't think that they would buy that. And even if they did, even if they believed it wasn't his child... They might have thought to themselves, so why are you with her? Why are you raising someone else's child? But he follows after God, and he does it anyways. Then he's tasked with taking Mary to Bethlehem. That's the the land of his ancestors. And so he goes there, travels on this long journey with this uh, woman who is pregnant, tries to find a place for her to stay. Can't find any place except for a stable. Then Jesus is born. After Jesus is born, we see that the wise men come. Probably sometime after, maybe a couple years after, wise men come and bring gifts to this newborn king. Joseph is warned in a dream that Herod is trying to kill baby Jesus. And so he gets up in the middle of the night, and he gathers his family, and they flee to Egypt. Now, my son is just over two years old, and I know from firsthand experience how difficult it is to travel with children. And it's difficult in a temperature controlled environment inside of a car seat when you got coca melon playing. I mean it's difficult to travel with little children and so Joseph gets up in the middle of the night and they're traveling by foot and by donkey to Egypt. would have been about 90 miles. It would have taken four to seven days to get there. And not only that, it wasn't the safest thing to do. Oftentimes thieves and robbers would wait uh, on the on the roadside, waiting for travelers to pass by. And they weren't just any travelers; they were probably traveling a little bit slower, a little bit noisier than the average traveler. So they were kind of sitting ducks. They were vulnerable. They were out in the open. And so they go to Egypt, and then you know the question is, it's not answered in the scripture. But how did Joseph provide for the family? I mean, where did they stay? Did they find someone that they knew a friend of a friend and stay there. Likely, Joseph and Mary had never been to Egypt themselves, and so they're refugees in this foreign land, and they have to figure out how they're going to provide for themselves. You know, you think that maybe Joseph opened up a carpentry shop, or how did he provide for the family? We don't know exactly how long they were there uh, in Egypt, but what we do know is they were there until Herod died. Some scholars suggest they could have been there up to four years. And so they're there in Egypt for four years, and Joseph probably felt the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he's trying to provide for his family. Finally, Joseph has another dream, and it's, he, he learns that Herod is dead. He can now return back to Nazareth and, have, and be, live in safety. And so he does that. He moves back to Nazareth. But what happens after that is he just kind of disappears. He just kind of disappears from the Scripture. And, you know, we get to the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2, which is kind of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and Joseph's nowhere to be found. Mary is mentioned, and uh, Mary comes to Jesus when there's a problem with the wine there. And if if Mary's husband, Joseph, was still alive, she probably would have come to him. You get to Jesus' death, and most assuredly, Joseph is dead at this point. Because uh, Jesus said to John, he, says, he asked John to take care of his mother, and it says that in the text in John chapter 19, that John took Mary into his household. And of course, if, if Joseph was still alive, there wouldn't be no need to do that. So let's just recap for a moment. You, you have Joseph, who's a just and righteous man who followed after the Lord. He experiences this feeling of betrayal, learning his betrothed is pregnant. God asks him to raise someone else's child and in the process probably experienced the scorn and condescension of those around him he makes this long road to bethlehem finds a place for mary to rest becomes a refugee has to run for his life traveling with a toddler to a foreign land and finally things settle down but then he disappears we don't know what happened after that we don't know don't have any record of what he might have taught jesus But what's most likely, he probably never saw Jesus' miracles. Probably never saw the water turn to wine. Probably never saw the feeding of the 5,000. He probably never saw Jesus walk on water. Probably never saw Lazarus being raised from the grave. For Joseph, following God, sometimes it didn't seem like it made a lot of sense. For some some of us today, maybe at times, following God doesn't seem to make sense. Maybe some of us, like Joseph, we feel betrayed. Maybe a close friend or a spouse who told us they'd love us forever walked out on us. Maybe some of us have been left to deal with pain and hurt that's caused by someone else. Maybe some of us have been placed, like Joseph, in a place of uncertainty. Don't know when how we're going to pay the bills. Maybe we have a loved one who's dealing with health issues and we don't know how it's gonna turn out. Maybe we have a child who's been kind of wayward and we don't know if they're ever going to return to the right path. Maybe some of us, like Joseph, maybe we feel a little bit insignificant. We feel like our lives don't matter. That we're always left doing the least important things and kind of miss out on the most important things in life. Well, if we've ever felt that way, and I think we all have, I think there's hope in the scriptures. And there's hope in this story. And the hope is found in an unlikely place. It's found In a genealogy that appears right before this passage. A record of the birth or or the lineage of Jesus. So I'm going to read this genealogy. There's a lot of names there. I apologize, but we'll get through it together, hopefully. It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadad, and Abinadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, by the wife Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehobom. Rehobom, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, there was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud and Eliud, the father of Eliezer. And Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. That's a lot of names. But notice in this genealogy, you have these heroes of the faith. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You have David, Hezekiah, Uzziah. Then you have Joseph. And what's interesting is the fact that you have Joseph in Jesus' lineage when, from a human standpoint, wasn't actually his father. wasn't actually his father. We know in the Scriptures, and it's quite clearly proclaimed, just in the passage we read in the same book, that Mary was a virgin. The child was from the Holy Spirit. And yet still, Jesus is going to be considered, in a sense, the son of Joseph, in his line. That Jesus was both the son of Joseph and the son of God. You see, when God's story interacts with man's story, sometimes it kind of blows our minds. When God's story interacts with our story, it can be confusing. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. And God is doing something so enormous and so big in Joseph's life that it just doesn't make sense at all to him. Joseph is going to be given the privilege of raising the Son of God. Imagine that responsibility, that privilege that he's been given. But when it first happens, when he found, finds out that Mary is pregnant, he doesn't know any of that. He probably doesn't know any of that even when the angel appears to him. He's just following after God, but it doesn't make sense to him. And God has bigger dreams for Joseph than Joseph has for himself. I mean, think about what were Joseph's dreams What were the the dreams he had for himself? We don't know for sure, but perhaps he dreamed of being a great carpenter. Maybe he dreamed of being the best carpenter in Nazareth. Maybe he dreamed of being a good father, a good husband, raising his children in the law. We don't know what his dreams were, but God had bigger dreams. They weren't bad dreams, but God had bigger dreams for him. And God's story intersected with his story. And God says, I've got something bigger for you. I need an earthly father to raise my son. And though you didn't do anything creating this child, I'm going to credit this him to you. He's not only going to be my son, I'm going to share him with you. He's going to be the son of God, but he's also going to be the son of Joseph. It's an incredible privilege and responsibility. See what happens when God's story intersects with our story. It never makes sense, but it's always good. When God's story intersects with our story, it never makes sense, but it's always good. And we see this pattern throughout Scripture. We see all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. He's living in a pagan land, and God comes to him, and he makes some promises. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you this incredible amount of land. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The only problem is he doesn't have any children. He doesn't have any land. It doesn't make sense from a human perspective. And yet God fulfills his promises, and God has good intentions for Abraham. God's story didn't make sense, but it was good. Then you see the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? By all accounts, he... Did the right things. He was a generally good person, followed after the Lord, but his brothers were jealous of him. He was sold into slavery, and then he goes into Potiphar's house, and he serves Potiphar well, and yet he's accused of doing something falsely. Thrown into prison. I wonder what he thought during that time. I wonder the times he questioned, God, why would you put me here after I followed you? And yet God had something good in mind. He used Joseph to save all of Israel and to save Egypt. So Israel goes into Egypt, and after some time, Israel becomes slaves in in Egypt. They're oppressed brutally. Then God comes to a man named Moses. Moses is a little bit timid, not a good speaker, at least that's what he said. God says, I need you to lead my people out of Egypt. There's a problem there. One man is going to take on the superpower of the ancient world. One man is going to take on all of these chariots and horses and armies. It didn't make sense. And yet he follows after God. He goes to Egypt and God works through him with incredible miracles and allows him to part. uh, God parts the Red Sea and they go into freedom. Didn't make sense, but it was good. After that, the, the Israelites are in the wilderness and God calls them to Go into the promised land. But the the authorities send out some spies, and the spies come back and say, there's no way we can enter into this promised land. The inhabitants there, there's no way we can take them. They are like giants. It doesn't make sense to go into this promised land. But God had good plans for them, and they entered into the promised land and possessed it. Then you get to the time of the Judges. And uh, during the time of the Judges, at one point, the Midianites are oppressing the people of Israel very seriously. And then God comes to this scaredy cat named Gideon, who happens to be in a wine vat, who's uh, thrashing grain and hiding it because he's afraid that the Midianites are going to come and steal it from him. And he tells Gideon, you're going to save my people. You're going to defeat the Midianites and, and bring freedom to my people. And, of course, he gathers up the armies, and God's like, yeah, we've got too many. We've got to get rid of some of these people. And he whittles it down to only 300 men to take on the forces of many. And it didn't make sense from a human perspective. God chose chose, uh, David to be king over his people, even though he was the youngest in the family. It wasn't the person that man would choose. It didn't make sense from a human perspective. It was good. Then you get to the story of Christmas time. The God who spoke the worlds into existence, the God who dwells in inapproachable light, decides to become a baby. He decides to lay aside his glory. Decides to become completely helpless, completely dependent. Had to be fed, had to be changed, completely vulnerable. Doesn't make sense, but it was good. The church father, Augustine, put it this way, our Lord came down from life to suffer death. The bread came down to hunger. The way came down on the way to weirdness. The fount came down to thirst. He says he so loved us that for our sake he was made man in time, although through him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy, he the word without whom all human eloquence is mute. The incarnation doesn't make sense from a human perspective. Chuck Colson in his book, The Faith, says this, In one sense, the great invasions of history are are, are analogous to the way in which God, in in the great cosmic struggle between good and evil, chose to deal with Satan's rule over the earth. He invaded, but not with massive logistical support and huge armies. Rather, in a way that confounded and perplexed the wisdom of humanity, it was a quiet invasion. Few people understood what was happening. Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew that she was with child, but she also knew that she had never been with a man, not even Joseph, to whom she was engaged. She had learned of her pregnancy and that it was to be a virgin birth when an angel told her that she was pregnant with the Son of God. For many, including Joseph, the doctrine of the virgin birth is hard to accept. But the God who could speak the universe into being, who could create human life, could certainly choose to make himself known by the power of the Holy Spirit through a virgin. Most of the people in Palestine at the time of Jesus' birth were expecting messianic evasion like we saw at D-Day. Conquerors in armor bringing a sword to set the people free from oppression. Jesus only added to the bewilderment of the people who knew him when he announced, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This was The time the Jews had waited for for so long. Liberation? And who was this ordinary Nazarene carpenter to say he was bringing the kingdom of God? So the incarnation didn't make sense. And not only did that that not make sense, the cross didn't make sense. When it was fully revealed that Jesus would not only be a baby in a manger, but a man hanging on the cross, nobody made sense of that. Even the disciples followed Jesus for years. They couldn't wrap their minds around the Messiah dying on the cross. God so uh, dying on the cross for humanity. But little did they know that Jesus, the son of Joseph and the son of God, came to die in order to save his people from their sins. It didn't make sense, but it was good. Here's one thing I think we can be reasonably sure of. When God's story intersects with our story, It's not going to make sense. And the reason it's not going to make sense is because God has bigger dreams for you than you have for you. God had bigger dreams for Joseph than Joseph had for Joseph. And sometimes God's going to lead us to a difficult place. Sometimes he's going to lead us to the valley of the shadow of death, and we're going to look around and we confuse, like, God, why did you bring me here? And it's not going to make sense to us. But We can also trust that God's plan is good. Sometimes God's going to call us to do things that are difficult or maybe even impossible. Sometimes God's plan will call us to love the unlovable, to serve the broken, to forgive the undeserving. Sometimes God's plan will call us to risk rejection, persecution for sharing our faith or standing up for what is right. I think we act surprised sometimes when God's plan doesn't kind of compute with what we think it should be when it doesn't make sense to us. But I think when we look at the totality of Scripture, that's how God operates. Because we think that we want something, we think that uh, we have these dreams that are the best for us, and God's like, yeah, those might be all right, but I got something better for you. And in the moment, maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe it doesn't make sense completely to us until we get to heaven. But God has a good plan for us. There's an old legend of a town in Germany, um, It was a farming town, and for years, they experienced really poor crops, really poor harvest. And uh, so they're experiencing all these poor harvests, and finally they get angry, and they come to God and say, God, can we just plan out the whole schedule for this year? And God's like, okay, you can do that. Kind of a precursor to Bruce Almighty or one of those movies, I think. But God says, all right. And so whenever they prayed for rain— rained whenever they prayed for the Sun to shine the sun shined, and so they had corn that was never bigger they had uh, wheat that was never bigger and so they are ecstatic that they got to do they had the plan they knew what they were doing and now they've got this incredible harvest and so they go to harvest the corn open up the 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 shocks and there's nothing inside they go to the wheat and they open up there's no kernel inside. They go to God and say, God, you failed us. I mean, we had the sun, we had the rain, we had these incredible plants, but there's nothing inside. And God said, no, the problem is you never asked for the harsh north wind. Because without the harsh north wind, there's no pollination. And without the pollination, there's no harvest. There's no crop." I think the question for us is, are we going to trust God when it doesn't make sense? Are we going to trust God? I mean, it's easy to trust God when the sun is shining. It's easy to trust God when everything is going well, but are we going to trust him when the harsh north wind comes? Are we going to trust him even when it's difficult? Even when we're in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death and we look around and we're like, why am I here? This doesn't make any sense. So as we look at the Christmas story this year, let's be reminded of two things. Number one, when God's story intersects with our story, it never makes sense. It didn't make sense for Joseph. God was calling him to do things that just in the moment didn't seem like they made sense. It seemed kind of foolish. But God had a good, incredible plan for him. And then we look at the incarnation in general, and it didn't make sense for God to become a baby, for God to become vulnerable. But let's also be reminded that, by the Christmas story that God has good things in store for his people. That God's ways are higher than our our ways. That God's story is always good. We saw that with Joseph who had this incredible responsibility to raise the Son of God, to father the Son of God. That Jesus was credited to his line even though he was, had nothing to do with Jesus from a human standpoint. And the, the Christmas story is about the light who shines in darkness. The birth of a king who would one day go to the cross and three days later rise again so that we could have life and experience forever with him. It's good news. When God's story intersects with our story, it never makes sense. But it's always good. God's story is always good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. Lord, help us to be people who trust you, both in the good times and the bad times, when the sun is shining, but also when the harsh north wind is coming, believing that you have a plan, that you have a purpose. Help us to trust you, even when following you doesn't seem to make sense, Lord. Help us to be reminded this Christmas season as we consider your birth, that you're there for us, that you're with us, and that you're working all things for the good of those who love you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Help us to believe what you say and walk with you day by day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.